Good afternoon. It's five o'clock UK time and welcome to this week's What Comes Next Live. I think we're on episode 102 or three. I haven't checked lately. Um, I am really, really pleased this week that my guest is Dr. Carrie Goucher. Um, Carrie and I have been friends for quite a long time, um, though we've not actually spoken for quite some time. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what has been going on, what has she learned, what what's she now a doctor in? Well, I know the answer to that, but I'm sure she can explain. Um, and what she might feel is coming next down the line. And I, I am, as I normally am, coming to you from south of London. And if I wave to the north, Carrie is up in Cambridgeshire somewhere, I believe, where she's been based for a number of years. Welcome, 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 Carrie. Thank you, Tom. Absolutely delighted to be here. Cool. So tell us a little bit about um, what you, you you moved to Cambridge a number of years ago. I, would, I think about five, six years ago, we were punting on the cam uh, on uh, one autumn. Um, and what what took you to Cambridge, what you've been doing there and um, what you got your doctorate in and what you're up to now? Well, I'd always been interested, as you know, in um, how how we work at work. So I have a, a shelf bristling with books um, that explore that theme. I had an agency for 17 years that helped large organisations engage with um, and spark action with their employees. And what I came to realise is there was a hu- there's a huge amount of friction in the way of every employee from email to uh, decision making to meetings. And the more I waded into the world of trying to um, help organisations have an adult to adult relationship with their um, employees, so everyone is responsible for moving the organisation forward, the more I realised that we've got to take some of that friction out of the way. Hmm. So I started working on meetings. That was something some clients specifically asked me to do. Um, and as I did that, it, it caught the eye of somebody in the weirdly in the engineering department at Cambridge University so I went to talk to them they offered me a conversation about doing a PhD Um, I drove there thinking they they really don't want me to do a PhD I start everything I can't finish anything I'm not very detailed I was really late and um, and I thought it doesn't matter because they're not going to want me and I don't want to do it well anyway four years later (laughs) I did do it um, and um it was it was one of the most joyful enriching um experiences i could ever have imagined having in my very late 30s hmm. well what made it so i had this idea that cambridge university would be full of people very bright people who wanted to tell you how clever they were and who wanted to kind of give you a beating <laughs> if they were your tutor or your supervisor on a regular basis. I found it full of people who were open, curious, supportive, encouraging, creative. People would come by my desk. So the first day I got there, um, so I didn't, I, uh, I didn't tell my supervisors, but I did continue running my business throughout. Um, and the first day I got there, um, just to kind of show up and show my face and say, you know, I'm ready to start. They said, here's your desk. And there was this big desk and it said 
Caroline Beddingfield, as my name was then, at the top. And I was like, you want me to sit there for three years? Having, you know, worked wherever I wanted. So I did sit there some of the time. Um, but what I found is that people would stop, incredibly clever, bright people would stop by my desk and say, what did you just draw? And, oh, that looks interesting. And can you tell me what your data shows? You know, people were so interested and curious and took me seriously, which was um, wonderful. And and I felt I had the freedom and the skills and the tools, or you know, I was provided with the development to develop the skills to look at something through a fresh angle. And I d- discovered a world I could never have have imagined. Hmm. So what, tell me a bit about that world you discovered. Well, I guess, I guess the, everybody thinks a PhD is, is a, a big research project and mm-hmm. that your, your PhD is to find out something really clever. And ideally that's the outcome, but really it's your, it's your L plate research project. What you're really trying, to, what you're really doing is a degree in, um, in research studies. Hmm. Um, what you learn is how we know what we know and what is knowledge and I guess they were two levels of thinking that I had never um, never even really (laughs) explored before so ontology and epistemology I know you've um, explored both of those areas Um, and the kind of conversations I ended up in took me into this glorious grey area of I, I, when, when we think about what what scientists say <laughs> we think of it as as well well science has agreed that x or um, there are two different studies two different scientists and they disagree about this and actually anyone anyone with a phd who's a, a professional researcher an academic would tell you anything it's, it's just degrees of confidence of which there's often it's not very <laughs> we're not we're never very confident about things we're only trying to um to constantly a- add another building block to what people know already as they say stand on the shoulders of giants so it's just a completely different way of thinking and i found it completely mind-blowing in a wonderful way that's I love the way you encapsulate some of those learnings. You were there for four years. I actually do. You, you may remember we um, met up with for you uh, for coffee with you in Cambridge shortly after you'd started, and you had the quite weird experience of we'd have a, we're having this really great in depth conversation. You said, "I have to go. I've got to get back to my desk. I've got to keep working hours," and rather than being the freedom of being an entrepreneur. Um, but listening to what you were just saying there is it's this different different and linked spin to the, almost the definition of science. Um, I remember a lot of people were talking about, well, the scientists say this, the scientists say this. We all discovered scientists with COVID, right? And I said, yeah, but science is only the best theory we have so far. And the scientific method is to, I guess, in a hopefully convivial way, look to poke holes in people's theories. So the, what you were saying there from a research um standpoint is just it's landing for me it's something to cogitate on which is it's just degrees of confidence and we can just that's that's it's linked but slightly different and it's really interesting it's just really interesting yeah it's it's a it's a wonderful world to be to be part of and it's a really humbling world i thought it would be 
I thought it had the potential to be a humiliating world where everybody explained how not clever you were. And actually, it's it, it's not that. It's a humbling world where you realise how little you know, but how exciting that is. Hmm. Wonderful. So when you went in and you, you took, you said it took four, four years overall, um, you had an idea of what you were going in there to research, to study, to come out with. Was what you came out with, how close to what you went in with as ideas was what you came out with as your thesis? So. I might not be framing that right, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, all I went in with was questions. Okay. And you spend the first, I, I, I um, completed it in three years and I spent the first year okay. just exploring questions and trying to find a research question and a, and a cluster of sub questions that I could spend the second year exploring and the third year um, bringing to some kind of some mm. kind of conclusion. Um, I I went in I, I went in with questions around how can we make better use of this precious precious resource we have, which is time in the workplace specifically that which we invest in meetings. So meetings are this very high density, high intensity activity in which multiple people are ideally devoting 100% of their attention. Mm -hmm. And we use it quite frivolously. And few people are entirely satisfied with their meeting load and and the quality of their meetings or the experience that they have. Um, And actually only a lot of people are, are relatively dissatisfied. So it's one of the um, less positive sides of their work. So that, I'm not saying for a moment that people, there aren't great meetings and that there aren't some really energising meetings, but as an overall experience for most people, it's net, just about net, net negative. Um, and I was a bit tired of reading how-to tips. You know, here's here's how to improve your meetings, 10 ways and, you know, we could kind of rattle off about six of them, have an agenda, start and finish on time. Don't let people interrupt, um, stick to the agenda. And it's all about chairing and having a strong chair. And I just felt that was nowhere near good enough to match the kind of collaborative, energizing, productive, creative, synergistic experience we're trying to, you know, outcome we're trying to get from meetings. And I guess uh, before I went to Cambridge, I lived in your world where we talk about um, everything from servant leadership, love in business, purpose, um, energy, you know, way beyond, way, way, way beyond tactics like starting and finishing on time. And then when I got to the, um, when I started my PhD, and of course, the first thing you do, I was so naive, I didn't really realise this. The first thing you do is just read a lot of papers, like a lot of papers in the hundreds. I probably read about 800 papers in my first year. Wow. Um, 300 of which were exclusively about um, meetings. And I just, I paper after paper after paper, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Um, so I felt they, there were some excellent uh, papers and particularly an excellent book, but um, the majority was fairly, fairly generalised um, key driver question analysis around so so a survey what was the last meeting you went to and um uh, how satisfied were you with the process and how satisfied were you with the outcome plus a load of things that you kind of 
say did or didn't happen? So did we stop and finish on time? And um, did uh, did I have the opportunity to speak? And was there an agenda? And did we follow the agenda? And of course, the conclusion of all of those was it's helpful to have an agenda. You know, just we just go around the circle, complete the loop of the thing we already thought, because the things they were asking about were on that limit, fairly limited list of tactics. So the answers they got came from that limited list of tactics. So that's not to say that it's not helpful to have an agenda. But I felt there was just a world of of possibility beyond that. And we already have brought that sophistication to things like leadership um, to team dynamics, to culture, but we were not applying it to meetings, both in the um, real world and in the um, academic scholarly world. We're treating meetings as these kind of standalone events. So it's a bit like saying, if I said to you, Tom, what um, what makes a great conversation? And you know, the first thing you'd be like, Whoa, well, it depends what the conversation is. <laughs> and the second thing you might say is, well, um, you know, you don't just pluck a conversation out of the air. It's, it's steeped and embedded in our previous relationship. What has happened to me this day? What the conversation's about? It's a, so I guess I'm taking a very long way to say it's a systems problem. So meetings are systems problems and my research shows that. Mm. That's not to say other scholars didn't consider them that. They just didn't treat them as that in their study. They did a different kind of study. So I did a systems based study, um, and explored what's around the meeting so what it's connected to not just what happens the tactics that happen within it and that revealed quite a different picture in many ways um, and I tried extremely hard I worked very very hard to keep my own thoughts and experiences as a practitioner out of my results and of course we are my voice is, of course, in my results and in my thesis, you know, what I chose to listen to in interviews, what I attended to and what I didn't, you know, it inevitably impacts the data I collected, let alone how I interpreted it. However, I, I did my very best to keep to un- at least to understand what my researcher voice was, my all my researcher footprint was within my study. That, well, that's fascinating because when I was listening to you there, the, one of the first things that occurred to me was, all of Kahneman and Tversky's work around heuristics and biases and it's like how much confirmation bias there is if you do uh how do meetings work were you happy with the meeting did it finish the old assumption is and I just thought what if you lift it up a whole lot and go why do we have meetings in the first place what are they designed to do and then you just put it into much clearer terms of like it's a systems issue so what sits around it so Given that you you then had you know you had this very strong focus on being aware of your biases and looking to eliminate them as a researcher and so so you know the, I'm I could talk to you for hours to understand what did you learn and what was knowledge to you and uh, how did you know what we know and how did you learn what you learned but I'm actually also a little bit impatient and cognizant of um, not being able to talk for hours and keep within the the creative constraint of a podcast. Um, Let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So you took the first year to um, go in with a bunch of questions and really the one core question, you mentioned just one core question. I'm sure there were others. Um, and then you, you just determined that it was a, that to look at it from a systems approach. What did you come up with? <laughs> the, 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 so my, my entire research question was something around what what can we learn from taking a systems approach? So how, so rather than say, we need a systems approach and I'm going to take it and let's see what 
let's see what the result is. Really, I was saying, what happens if we take a systems approach? Is it useful? What do we learn? So I think we learn a few things. Firstly, um, we are in collaborative overload. That, I didn't invent that. That's the thing. <laughs> um, but my studies really back that up from a meetings point of view. So we have, as soon as we work on collaborative projects, we need really strong relationships. So trust, and we need enough trust to get the job done, even when it's difficult and even when the project or the work doesn't go well or we disagree. And um, having uh, building trust takes time. It takes face to face time, including meetings. It takes um, effort and energy. And we can only do so much of that. But of course, many of us work on multiple collaborative projects. So what do we do? (laughs) Do we skip the trust part and just kind of transact on those? That doesn't go so well. Or do we invest in the trust part and and do all that interacting and then end up doing our deep work um, outside. So the, the deep work being the, the um, uninterrupted focus, we need to do difficult, difficult things. Um, do we end up doing that in evenings, weekends? And if I, you know, as I talk, I'm, I'm wondering if some of the listeners really recognise <laughs> that where there are all these meetings. It's very easy to say have fewer meetings, but actually um, we go to meetings because we're trying to get the job done. Um, and what that means is that the rest of our work spills over. So um, my research is that loud and clear and it, it is a call to arms that we need to break meeting gridlock. So we do need to ha- we, we somehow need to put a, a, a constraint. And I love the idea that that could be a creative constraint hmm. on meeting capacity, because at the moment there's no check and balance. You can dive into somebody else's time budget, stick a meeting in their diary and there's not much they can do about it. They can turn it down. But we don't have to ask. We don't really have to ask for that time. It's kind of OK to use up other people's time. So I think we need to press the reset button on meeting load, i.e. how many meetings we're going to and the total time that we're taking. We also need to my research shows that we need to stop thinking about the idea of running meetings or conducting them or um, calling them, which is all transacting, but we need to think about designing them and engaging people in them. Um, so my my data show a really clear extra step that gets missed around social contracting. So I'm not sure if any of you can recognise that thing where you arrive in a meeting Either you've no idea what's going to happen and why you're there and you've just shown up because it's somebody you trust or somebody who's important who says who's invited us. Or you think it's about one thing and it turns out to be about another. And whatever the social contract was in our head, it's it's been broken. So a social contract being the agreement we have between us, we may not even know we have it, which is it's not written down, but on which we're basing our expectations and our behaviour. So the reason it's helpful to circulate an agenda in advance, we'll talk in a moment about how much I hate the word agenda. (laughs) But the reason that people like that is so that they've got a a picture in their head of what they're arriving at. They understand Mm. what we're trying to get to and what their role in it is. And there's we we want that. Some people want that a lot. So it's much more neuro inclusive to Mm. share expectations and share um purpose, scope and roles beforehand. 
Um, but we, but this social contracting piece in general gets missed, missed out. So what I do now is show people how you can do that really, really simply, um, yeah. with four or five, um, elements to an email, for example, and a question at the end. But how rad, my research shows how radical that is in terms of, um, having people arrive with a shared social contract in place that won't get broken. When you put those four or five, I'm not asking you to talk, talk us through all, all of that, but feel free if you, if you think it would be useful. Um, what's, what's different in doing it with your method that has come out of your research than the standard you're meeting at this time? Uh, yeah. here's the title, yeah. here's the agenda, and here's what we're looking to get out of it. Yeah. So, um, so normally what happens is you get a title, as you say, and that might say, it might be something like website meeting or catch up meeting or, um, uh, uh, project X meeting. So you've no idea from that title what it's about. It's, it's, it's not a purpose led title. And imagine you wouldn't, you wouldn't pay a thousand pounds to go on a course called the X course. You, you, there's, yeah. there's, there's nothing driving you even in the title. That's the first thing. That's, that's a crucial piece of real estate. It's the thing that sits in your diary. It's what goes in the subject of the email when it pings you the reminder. So, um, so there's a big cue there. Then my, my method shows you how to use that title really well. It's a really basic step. Um, the other thing we do in an agenda is we often just list the topics. So again, there's no direction. There's no, um, outcome um there's no uh indication of what process we're going to use or what technique we're going to use to 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 get to the outcome should we know what it is it's just a list of a list of topics so we're spending the first part of the meeting trying to sort of figure out what's going on and what we're you know, we're trying to contribute or we just plow down one route and realize let only later that other people are going down a different route so my method um makes that really clear so for example including some kind of purpose statement in it in the um invitation including meeting questions so a really easy way to frame up stages you want to go through is pose them as a question humans are problem solving machines mm. give us a question we'll answer it <laughs> mm. and we'll tell other people that they should answer it as well if they start going off track um and then i include my methods and scoping. So it's a few bullets on what we will do and a few bullets on what we won't do. And that gives you the opportunity to say right up front, these things are for another meeting. So again, people will start to self-moderate if you use them. And then um, some kind of some question or statement or something which is designed to engage people. Now, you might need to engage people far more than just sending them an email, but assuming um, you're emailing the them an invitation at the very 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 least include something that says this is what i'm thinking of what do you think or what would you add or what have i missed the same as we would in um, in a, in many collaborative processes where we send people something saying this is my starting point what did i what did i miss so it's a but we often don't do that in in meeting invitations so there are a few more ingredients but that's the kind of thing and it's mm. so annoyingly obvious <laughs> mm, mm. There's there's nothing in that part that I don't that I think anybody would find particularly surprising. 
the reality is we usually don't do it. People mm. who do it well are um, coaches, facilitators. We do it when we're running a workshop, when somebody's paying us to do it. Um, but we don't just whip out those those four or five mini bullets for everyday meetings. And we could. Hmm. Yes, it's it's like that great phrase when one of the biggest compliments any of us can be paid. If, if you say say something back to somebody after listening and they go, that seems so obvious now. And it's the operator on the now. So listening to you, that seems so obvious now. <laughs> and it's like there's this great simple learnings, but they've come out of deep, um, deep research. So, you know, I heard you say it's if I lift it up, it's it's also about care. Yeah. About caring about the value that can be provided from the meeting for the business or the organization, but it's also about caring for the people's time. You mentioned at the very beginning that it's a friction using up that time. And I think you use words like it's a sort of dense and there's another adjective. And it is quite stunning when I've done work facilitating multi-day offsites for people, they pay for my time, but very rarely do they actually, and I make them consider it. I'm going, if you're, and back in the days when people were a bit less considerate of the amount of carbon footprint, you might fly six people in from around the world for two or three days, normally business class, etc. So there's an actual dollar cost, but that's not even the cost. The, the cost is their time. Yeah. That's scarce resource. And if they're in for two days with us, it's probably knocking them out for five working days. Yeah. And in which time- they do nothing of that. And it's like, let's consider that time. It's, so it's caring about, you know, not look, I mean, the flip from friction to lubricant. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, you know, what would it take from, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening to you and, whether the the concepts are high level or whether they're granular tips, they're making me think about how much care I put into designing meetings and engaging people. That one of the key themes you said. So, that's, so, so time is half the story. Time is a non-refundable, non-renewable resource, mm-hmm. and and half of what I do is about making the best possible use of it. The other half is about diffusing the tribal forces we get in meetings. Oh, okay. So hundreds of thousands of years ago, we it was crucial to stay safe in our tribe, to be useful to our tribe and to not get eaten by a lion. So our, our conduct within a tribe was vital and we've not lost that part of our brain. And under pressure at work, that's exactly where we go again. So when we so we have a strong desire to be right, to be useful, to look clever, not stupid, mm. um, to look productive to look like we're on top of things um, to be, and that can lead to things like people being defensive or um, overly critical or all kinds of kind of micro aggressions um, mm. or, or the feeling of being micro threatened in meetings. So the whole other piece of the Avasta Boulder, which is the work I do now is helping people understand how to diffuse those. So to get really good pro-social behavior. So high, we want people to be, highly honest in meetings that's how we get to what matters to what the truth is we want them to be highly respectful of each other and we want them to have high care for the outcome so to be to act in service of the outcome or the work Um, and the two overlap together so there's nothing more 
triggering than feeling that your time has been wasted. <laughs> so the two overlap and many of the things we talked about in just one example, which is how do you put together a meeting invitation, uh, cross over into that tribal space as well. Um, and it's when you bring those two halves together. So you make the absolute best use of people's time and you bring out their very pro-social, um, very collaborative, um, generative behaviours. That's where the magic happens. Hmm. So on that second part, uh, because you, you did give us some tips on structuring a meeting and inviting people to a meeting. Um, and I'm sitting here resembling this remark. I have offended different people in meetings, including your good self <laughs> um, at times. And it's a constant source of humility and learning for me to learn. I've learned so much about neurodiversity, for example, and how that impacts meetings. Um, I've had, I had a guest called Lynn Pilkington come on and she massively focuses on neurodiversity. Um, and it's like, oh, God, I've been doing meetings wrong. <laughs> it's like, and, and feeling very bad about that and actually like, I could do it better. So what sort of the pro-social side of it? And uh, so we don't descend into silos and tribes and move into gang behavior is an element in psychology. Um, what sort of, simple tips could you give us to which would probably seem obvious once you told us <laughs> yeah so the first the first is to as the group leader or the, the meeting leader or, or the participant is to model clean communication so clean communication is high honesty high respect and in service of the work um, so an example of how you might do that and and if, if i can just go back one step if there is ever a scenario in which um, let's say me, if, if, whether, where I feel, um, what, did you use the word offended? Yes. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if me, you, anyone else feels offended in a meeting, we are, we, we all, we play a part ourselves in that. Mm. It, it is, it is a, um, it is a tribal behavior to feel micro threatened, i.e. offended. Mm. Um, the root out of that is clean communication. So if I want somebody to, to stop doing something in a meeting, like talking and talking and talking, for example, or talking about their agenda and not listening to anybody else's, that would be one good example, then I need to use um, clean communication. So imagine somebody's banging on about something. They've said it once. They said it twice. <laughs> they brought it up again. What you want to say is, I've heard you. Now, shush. We can't say that in a meeting. So what we do is we use a bit of passive aggression. Instead, what we can do is use clean comms. So we can do a bit of a validation. Uh-huh. Um, so we can say, um, I, um, I really get that that's a really important thing. So yeah. what I'm hearing you say is that dot, 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 dot. And I agree that's important. You can do a bit of, um, uh, appreciation. And I'm really glad that you're, bringing it to our attention because I know that's important. And then you can set a boundary. So that's in service of the work. Today, it's really important that we dot, 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 that we hear from everybody or that we um, cover these other issues as well. Whatever it is that you've already set up, this is how it all works together, whatever you've already set up in your invitation. So you've already scoped it. You don't need to backtrack and kind of start slamming stable doors while horses bolt everywhere. You've already said this is the thing that we need to do. These are the things that we won't do. And, and you, you hopefully already said it will be really important in this session that 
we hear from everybody or that we consider a wide range of options. So all you need to do is, uh, is validate, you understand, uh, show that you understand what they've said, uh, show your appreciation for them. So show res- show. Um, your respect for the fact that they're bringing it up and then you can set your boundary and you're modeling that for everybody Uh so that then if anybody else feels any sense of frustration they can also do the same um, and follow your lead and use your technique so that would be one other tip okay um i remember you having an event at the london transport museum it must have been five six years ago at least and you had you, your whole presentation was on clean communications and you'd done a book, e-booklet on it. I still have it. I've, I hopefully have applied it and learned from it a lot. It's, it's just so simple, isn't it? Once you apply that. Um, I'm conscious of not overrunning our half hour by too much. Um, and I'm in over a hundred shows. Um, what I've loved is that as thematically is that guests come on and they all have a business. They all have something in through which they do their work and they're normally sharing ideas, which may be related. They may not be related, but they're sharing and they're, they're sharing stuff so that people can, can learn, etc. Um, but they don't plug what they're doing. Um, and I've, but in this case, I kind of want you to like plug what you're now doing because you've come off this PhD and we've not spoken for for yonks, but you are now clearly very energized about putting it out in the world. So I'd love you if you feel comfortable to talk a little bit about what you're now doing and how and how people can access it. Well, oh gosh, I, my my goal is to change as many people's working lives as I can through meetings. We spend a lot of time at work in our lifetime. We spend a lot of time in meetings and we, we, my great joy would be to make them so much better for so many people. Um, And the ways I do that. So I work at organizational level. So helping organizations shift their meeting culture as a whole business. So impacting all meetings. Um, Often I start in one area and work out um, and if anybody was interested in in doing that with me, then they could look at joining a cohort. Um, so I run a cohort um, each year for a small number of companies that I work with um, as a, a sort of almost like an action learning group. And it's a sort of an easy, easy and affordable way to dip your toe in the water if you don't want to do a six figure change project just right now about meetings. The thing about meetings is it's in no one's budget. No one has a line item on their job description. It's not owned. So that's, so the cohort is a really nice way to make progress with peers. Um, and I'm also launching an e-course for individual people who want to change their meetings and become a, um, in, in hugely emotionally mature, an effective meeting leader. The idea being really to change the performance of the work, your, your work, your team through meetings. Um, and that's released on the 31st of January. And there is a pre-order um, option at the moment on my website. And I can send you the links to both of those. And I can also give a an extra discount code for your listeners, if you would uh, like. <laughs> that would be lovely. Um, the... And where, where do where do people find you online? 
So I'm at fewerfasterbolder.com. Um, I post most days on LinkedIn, Dr. Carrie Goucher. That's it. I mean, you're easy to find. Uh, so um, I endorse, uh, not only endorse uh, Carrie's brilliant mind, um, I want to also acknowledge you for um, sharing what you've learned about yourself um, on this process. Um, and you're absolutely modeling. Uh, I Over the last number of years, I've evolved my own simple heuristic for what it takes to be what I call an open leader. And it's to have these two characteristics of both being brave and hungry, uh, which on their own could be old school, controlling and toxic. But they have to be and that to be brave and hungry to really want to drive towards something, um, but also to be open and humble. And you've totally modeled that on this call. And I, I guess if I introspect, the reason I asked you to plug your what you're doing Right, it's because you are so passionate about, and you just came out and said it, is what's your purpose in, in life um, around business? And, you know, it's like when people have that energy, right, it's pretty irresistible. Right? So I just wanted to hear more about it. And so I do encourage our listeners to look up Dr. Carrie Goucher on LinkedIn um, and or go to fewerfasterbolder.com and and see what resonates for you. And I imagine for quite a number, they may be very interested in either your e-course or talking to you about other ways in which they can work with you. So um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and I always like to give my guests the, the final word. So what last words of wisdom does Dr. Carrie have for our audience? I think the next step for us as a um for humanity is to figure out how to get out of collaborative overload. Okay. I don't know what that, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> I think we've got steam coming out of our ears and it's not stopping anytime soon. So, um, so I'm, I'm eyes wide open, ears pricked for how we navigate our way out of, of collaborative overload. Well. I'm going to leave you with the last word because that makes me think I could jump in with a bunch of stuff, but I won't say anything. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege um, to reconnect with you in this fashion and uh, to give you space to share uh, uh, all of this. And we know that what comes next among those things is an e-course starting in January. So many thanks, Carrie. Thank you so much, Tom.